thanks all for um, sticking around, staying back for this one. This one I think is going to be very fascinating and it's also really nice to see at a Greenie conference about ecology and people and ecosystems and philosophy that there's space set aside for a topic like this. I reckon that's um, excellent news. So my name is Scott. I'm one of your former senators. So I'm going to be one of the ones probably with my phone pressed up to the, uh, my face pressed up to my phone at around two o'clock. Um, but I'll take that out of the room. Um, but in the meantime, I just want to um, thank Tim and the Green Institute crew and Marg and others for um, bringing us together. We don't do this kind of big thinking often enough. And so it's a real pleasure to be here. And also want to acknowledge and pay my respects to the, um, to the traditional owners of this extraordinary part of the world. So we're going to um, wrap through this fairly quick. We've got a little bit of time, actually, which is great. And we've got four incredible speakers. And I would also like to say um, that it's fantastic to be the token bloke at an all-female tech panel. We accept you. You'll be all right. That is really, really good. Um, uh, we're going to jumble up the order uh, a little bit to, to what it is on the program, and then I think we'll take questions at the end. Unless one of them says something so utterly provocative that you can't help yourself, um, I would like to get all the ingredients out on the table, and then um, we're going to throw and make the rest of the session as interactive as possible. So um, I've worked with all these extraordinary people in various capacities um, over the last 10 years or so, and the our first speaker um, on the subject of technology and security is the indefatigable and incredibly talented Felicity Ruby, who's now uh, with ThoughtWorks. We worked together, I think, for about six years, six or seven years, up just up the hill. So it's nice to be reunited, and Flick is going to tell us a little bit about technology, security, and apparently democracy, and kind of set the tone. So please, take it away. Hi everyone, it's good to be with you on Nungawal land. I wonder if my slide deck is there. It's um, hopefully been sent through to you. It has a bluish first slide. So I worked for um, Scott for six years and for um, quite a lot of that time we were learning a lot about technology and democracy and the threats and the potentials. And uh, he and many Greens around the world continue to be really genuinely excited about technology and democratic participation that it offers, uh, the political implications of the digital age. Um, so much so that sometimes we say things like this. This is something that I wrote and you said in the parliament. Um, the internet is the greatest global information sharing tool and library in history. The freedom to connect has led to information sharing, scientific and technological innovation, the formation of global civil society cooperation and networks that's extraordinarily valuable. It can provide carbon-free and jet-lag-free conferencing, telecommuting, work patterns, smart cities. So that's, what, that's a statement that's called tech utopianism. <laughs> And uh, we, we, we get into it a little bit. It's a pretty picture, but is it very true? It's a bit true. Um, but after what WikiLeaks and Snowden have taught us about the internet and surveillance, we can't really spruik it quite like that, um, as though everything's just dandy. So Greens all over the world have been standing up and grappling with this and trying to explore and defend and protest and insist that the, the potentials of the internet are there, but um, there, it's not all as it should be. Now, let me see if I can do this. So what Snowden and WikiLeaks taught us is um, the legal and the political implications of this image. So this is how traffic flows on the internet. And you can see how the infrastructure of the internet creates sort of surveillance capture points and how much data flows through the US. So even if you create a, uh, which means it's under US law and subject to its kind of surveillance um, capacities. So even if you're making a phone call from China to Latin America, the data also usually travels through the United States 
United States. So in theory, the internet's this distributed, decentralized network, but in reality, there are 13 places on the planet that contain the most important internet exchanges, 10 in the US and three in uh, US allied countries, the Netherlands, South Korea, and Sweden. In theory, email, the most popular application on the internet with 2.5 billion users, Apparently, I've heard on the Boyer lectures, uh, 215 billion emails a day, half of which I send to Scott, sorry about that. Um, um, so it's meant to be a d designed with this decentralised protocol, but in reality and in practice, it's extremely centralised. You know, so several hundred million people are using Gmail, uh, several hundred million more use Hotmail and Yahoo from Microsoft. So suddenly we're up to a billion users, that's about half, okay? And they're all physically, and the data is located in the US and consequently under US legislation. So it's difficult to keep your tech utopianism up um, when you realise the potential of the fat mags. This is a nice way of remembering the acronym, the, 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 the companies that are the most monopolistic, out of control, tax evading, surveillance collaborating powers on earth right now. Amazon, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Microsoft, Apple, Google and Salesforce, since Snowden in particular, have felt the need to provide better security. They felt their reputational and brand damage was such that they needed to pick up their act a bit. They haven't worked out how to pay tax yet. Uh, and their business model continues to exploit today's oil, which is data. But wait, it gets worse. Um, for democracy in the digital age, we're now dealing with cyber weaponry, cyber security and the cybers. Well, it's a bit of a cyber worry and it's why we need some cyber peace. Um, cyber weapons uh, include malware, viruses, trojans, weaponized zero-day exploits and ransomware. You might have heard about one called WannaCry that really affected the, the, the communications and the hospital system in the UK a little while ago. So this is code, weaponised code, that's designed to disrupt services and damage infrastructure. It actually has kinetic um, impacts. So the internet's become the fifth recognised theatre of war. So we've got you know, land, sea, air and space, and now it's the cybers. And our government, along with the other Five Eyes Buds that we're with, have recently authorised our Department of Defence to make offensive cyber weapons. So not just defending our, um, our, our interwebs, but actually attacking others. And so this is a real threat to the wonderful gift of this Library of Alexandria that we've been given on the internet in its democratic potential. And it's so scary because so many essential services are now hooked up to the internet. So much of our communications, media, transport, health, ports, you know, and so you think about the potential of that and treating the internet as a battlefield space. Um, it really is very poor security policy, but it also really very much affects future innovation and, and the potential um, tech utopianism that we like to talk about. So it's enough to make you give up and cry <laughs> into your cyber chips. <laughs> but what really makes him do this is when people give up in the face of these kinds of really depressing things that I've just told you, because there is quite a lot of potential for standing up and resisting this, um, which I'm going to talk to you a bit about. So please don't make Scott do this. And that, he really does that a lot when you say, I have nothing to hide, therefore I have nothing to worry about. Don't say that because that makes him cry. Okay, so how do we respond to this? Um, this corporate, this, this government, and this infrastructure problems that I just outlined. The internet's still in its 20s. So our coping methods for dealing with this stuff is relatively immature, and we, we bounce athletically around between these kind of um, ideas that Gary Marx has come up with to help try and explain how we're coping, what we're doing, and how we're reacting. 
This um, continuum shows a, a continuum between acceptance and resistance, and he describes the true conformists are those who attitudinally and behaviourally accept surveillance. They're the ones who say, I have nothing to hide, therefore I have nothing to worry about. The intimidated are the ones who know something's wrong, they're sad, and they think it's bad that privacy might be dead, but their behaviour goes along with it. Now, these are, these are words that Greens don't like very much, conformist and intimidated. We like to be more like true rebels who attitudinally and behaviourally say no and try to neutralise these kinds of situations. They know something's wrong and they try and do something about it. And then there's the closet rebels, the people who are under the radar screen helping create crypto tools and who are um, taking action to protect the potential for democracy. So... While in the face of all of the depressing things I just said, it's a little bit hip to be cynical and to say, oh, I give up. Do we do that for other issues? Do we do that about nuclear weapons? Do we do that about climate change? Do we do that about nuclear waste going to muckety? No. We call that kind of cynicism that gives up, we call that kind of not very hip and actually a bit of a cover for laziness or cowardice, right? So we have to try and think uh, a little bit like we do on other issues when it comes to defending our digital freedoms and, and the potential of the internet. We need to debunk this idea that we have nothing to hide, therefore we have nothing to worry about. Because, why? So many democratic institutions rely on confidentiality. Confidentiality between, say, the clerk of the Senate and our senators. They need to be able to confidentially give and receive advice. If you're a lawyer, if you're wanting to defend the idea of innocent before proven guilty, you need to have confidentiality with your client. You need to not be spied upon when the state is trying to put your peep in prison or priests and confessors is something that, you know, is a, is a kind of a, a commonsensical understanding of the need for privacy and confidentiality. Sources and journalists, very, very important. So if you piss on the idea of privacy, you're actually really undermining democracy. And as a political party and as members of a political party, you know, who want to be in democracy, maybe we don't want to do that. Okay. Another reason why we shouldn't say this, if I have nothing to hide, I have nothing to worry about, it's a very selfish statement. What about all the other actors in society that are keeping those institutions safe and squeaky clean for you? People like Scott, good journalists. Um, if these critical elements can't function, then you do have something to fear. You're, you're, you're participating in a society that you might not like. Privacy underpins other rights. It's a foundational right. If you have privacy, then you can also have the right to associate, to express. So it's an enabling right. It's not just one that sits by itself. And this chilling effect is very, very worrisome. One in, in 2013, there was a, um, a survey of US writers. One in six have thought twice and have not written about a topic to do with um, mass surveillance because they were worried about attracting um, attention and a further one in six con seriously considered not writing. So that's already having a pretty bad effect. So it affects th the information that we have and what we know and think about if our writers and thinkers aren't free to write and think. And um, of course it's available to misuse and we have to be worried about you know, the slow incremental boiling frog kind of situation. But the good news is, of course I have to finish on some good news, is that along with, with the Greens around the world, um, there is a lot of resistance. Here are people gathered outside Pine Gap in September last year, and Scott and I are soon going to Alice Springs where um, six Christians are facing seven years in jail because they stood up and did some civil disobedience um, to protest and to bear witness to this situation and to stand up for our rights and to, to oppose the kinds of surveillance at Pine Gap and the militarisation that it's implied in. So there is courage 
there is resistance going on. And there's international resistance. Some of these faces you would know. These are people who've sacrificed a great deal um, for our right to know and to defend digital democracy and its potential. Um, more good news. It is possible to create an encrypted tunnel through that infrastructure that I showed you before. It takes an afternoon to learn how to encrypt your emails, your texts, and your browsing on the internet. And Scott and I are constantly doing all these crypto parties. Please avail yourselves of one. Um, Edith was 93 when I took this picture. She's now 95. And her T-shirt says, keep calm and encrypt. It actually should be encrypt. Now you can keep calm. Since Snowden, there's been a really sharp increase of encrypted traffic on the internet. You're doing encrypted, encrypted stuff all the time when you engage with financial services online, of course. And every time you're um, on a website that's HTTPS at the top, that's an encrypted tunnel. So um, the more we encrypt, um, the more we use Signal. And sometimes the more we put those phones away and leave them at home, talk to some real people, um, we are um, creating some more hope and we're making the internet a bit safer for those who really need it. The thing about encryption is, I know that, you know, Tim, you've made this a plastic-free conference and I really appreciate that and I bought my cup and everything, but I want to leave you with one thought. A little layer of encryption, a little digital security hygiene can really, really make a significant difference. And with that, I will finish. And that slide's gone. And now we have the picture of the beach again. Thanks, Flick. That was... <laughs> Sorry. Who's... Um, what really struck me with that, the four different things, what are they again? Um, Confor uh, true, true conformism. Intimidated. Yeah. True rebel, closet rebel. I feel like I've been... Like, I know a, a bit about that stuff. I've been all four of those, sometimes yeah. on the same day. Did everybody else... Okay, so that's interesting, because we're not like that with climate change in this party. We're not like that with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Like, we have actually quite a settled and grounded philosophy on that stuff. Thank you, Flick. That was really valuable. And I reckon sets the scene. Um, Flick was talking uh, a lot about state actors and how the state manipulates um, these technologies and people through that for its other various and various purposes. Um, Georgia, I think, is coming. Georgia Miller, who I first met when she was working at FOE doing um, what seemed like, and maybe it wasn't, but what seemed like incredibly powerful single-handed work on nanotechnology way before it was kind of out there um, as, a, as a popular subject, um, has just, certainly since we were last hanging out, completed her PhD on policy and technological innovation. She's working as a research assistant at UNSW and as a senior strategist with the Sunrise Project. And I think you're going to talk a little bit more about what corporate actors are doing with this stuff. Actually, what state act is. Even better. Okay. That's how much... I'm sorry to be such a shit chair, but anyway. All right. Please welcome George Miller. Thanks for that, um, Scott. And just while waiting to get slides up, I think it's an interesting one, actually, because I think we do... I'm going to talk about pressures on science, and in particular for publicly funded researchers to show commercial relevance in their work. And I think we actually talk more about the commodification risks and conflict of interest issues around industry-supported science than we actually talk about the pressure that government puts on scientists through the money it provides and the influence this is happening on, ha having on um, research agendas, but also institutional cultures at organisations like CSIRO, but also increasingly at the universities and medical research institutes, etc. So... Today I want to talk about the fraught um, nature of asking the tail to wag the dog, by which I mean the increasing expectation that publicly funded researchers should be the tail that wags the dog of 
Australia's innovation capabilities. Um, so Australia's got a sort of a slightly unusual, you know, innovation ecosystem, if I can say that. We've got comparatively low industry investment in R&D. Because of the nature of our industry structure, we haven't traditionally had a lot of companies that do a lot of research here outside mining. So this is part of the government focus on universities and CSIRO to do that heavy lifting. But today I want to talk through an example of um, that I think it shows the fraught nature of that kind of expectation and alerts us to some of the um, contested social questions in that space. So first up, I want to just acknowledge that there's really wide support for innovation and from quite a diverse range of actors. And you know, we might quibble about the, um, the meaningfulness of the support that's offered and Australia ha has traditionally been quite ambivalent about having sustained innovation policy that actually aims to do new industry building. But nonetheless, from quite a broad range of sectors, we've got at least a stated support um, for promoting science-based technological innovation. And this comes both from more right-wing politicians and bureaucrats who say we need to get a better return from the public investment in research, but also from the Greens, you know, who are quite keen to use technological in innovation as a means to transform away from economic reliance on low value-added commodities exports and to a more knowledge-intensive industry. And indeed, um, technological innovation, within which I include biomedical innovation, and I'm going to focus actually today on biomedical innovation, is increase increasingly framed as key to Australia's reimagining and transitioning away from the lucky country to a clever country. And this has been embraced really proactively by the research sector and its champions. And in fact, um, I don't know if the resolution on this slide's um, close enough, but this is Malcolm Turnbull standing in front of um, the Australian Association for Medical Research Institute's annual dinner. And we can see on the banner there that AMRI is promoting not only hope and health through medical research, but also prosperity. And I think this is really significant, because particularly in the medical research space, we're increasingly seeing um, research framed as delivering both health, but also wealth. And the coupling of those two things, I think, is quite interesting and bears some more um, critical reflection. Now, this, um, Malcolm Turnbull's talking here about the launch of the Medical Research Future Fund. We can see that banner on the left. And today I'm going to use the Medical Research Future Fund as a bit of a case study to kind of dig into about some of these questions. So the Medical Research Future Fund, or MRFF, was first announced in the 2014 budget. You might remember the big controversy over GP co-payments, which were originally imagined to be a major funding stream for the fund. Um, it's envisaged to be a publicly funded $20 billion perpetual endowment fund, which means the capital sits there and each year the interest gets used to sponsor um, biomedical research, or medical research actually, although there is a focus on biomedical research, but also in particularly medical innovation. So a big part of the aim, or the stated aim of the fund was to really promote the commercial translation of Australian research into medical technologies and pharmaceuticals. Um, the fund is intended to be fully funded by government, and this is significant because it's intended to be funded through savings in the wider health budget. And so far, there's been $6.626 billion in savings, another word being cuts, in health spending that's been directed from primary health care, some preventive health programs, other health spending, 
um, to this fund, which is specifically intended for research. With interest earnings, the fund now totals $6.9 so it's sort of getting up to being around a third capitalised, made its first um, disbursements this year. And once fully funded, perhaps by 2024, it aims to provide a billion dollars for medical research annually, effectively doubling or even more than doubling public funding for medical research. And again, this is really significant because this is basically setting up a parallel funding stream um, separate to the um, National Health and Medical Research Council, which is now one of the biggest funders of medical research, particularly for universities. And the aim of the fund is to create both health but also, also economic benefits. So this is an excerpt from the first strategy document that's been released for the fund, and I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things here. So firstly, the aim is that the fund will support strategic investment. So unlike the NHMRC, which largely relies on investigator-driven applications, so if you're a researcher, you put in an application, for research, you want supported and then it gets peer assessed and there's a decision made to fund or not fund your research. This doesn't rely on peer review. There are recommendations that are made by an advisory board um, to government, but ultimately grant disbursement decisions are made by the health minister and cabinet. And it's really difficult to overstate the significance of this departure from traditional funding streams. The other key thing I want to draw your attention to is that it has the dual objectives of creating health and economic benefits. And the health minister, or former health minister and finance minister have both made clear that all the research that's supported by the fund must demonstrate a strong business case. So it's seeking not only to deliver those health outcomes, but the, the kinds of research that it will fund are limited by whether or not that research is then judged to have commercial value. Um, oh, sorry, the, the formatting on this has got a bit... Anyway, um, so I just want to talk you through a couple of um, the arguments made in favour of this fund um, before I come back to talking about some of the social implications of the way the fund's been set up. So when he was Communications Minister, Turnbull basically argued that we needed such a fund not only to deliver health outcomes, but to enable us to move further and further up that scale of technological advancement and smarts that will enable us to build the technological future to enhance prosperity of our children and grandchildren in the years ahead. So he was really quite clear that this is about um, industrial objectives. It's about trying to develop a competitive Australian medical technology and pharmaceutical sector, seeing this as a knowledge-based industry that's going to create value for Australia. But he wasn't alone on that. Um, in fact, that argument was made a lot in favour of this fund um, by the CSIRO chairman, who made the point that our mineral and energy wealth should continue for centuries, but the rewards that come from investing in our minds, in our abilities, in our potential, are more within our control. So basically argued that this will enable us to control our economic destiny and not be so vulnerable to the vic um, vicissitudes of iron ore pricing, for example. Um, the Amri president... That, who argued quite bluntly that we can only dig minerals out of the earth for so long. But also by the Greens, who said, you know, as we consider the role of Australia in the 21st century, we have to ask ourselves a pretty important question, which is what are we going to sell to the rest of the world when the rest of the world tells us to stop digging? Mm -hmm. And I guess the point that I want to make here is not that 
we shouldn't support technological innovation with a view to economic transformation, because clearly most of us in this room want to do that. But just to point out that our desire to do so, I think, can sometimes camouflage some or obscure some kind of unsettling tensions around the edges of um, how the value of public policy kind of can be reframed in favour of pursuing economic objectives, perhaps over other kinds of objectives, in particularly in sensitive areas like health. And I would say that we're actually seeing a reconceptualisation of public good in this policy. So no longer are we just simply seeing um, health and medical research policy as being designed solely or primarily to deliver population health outcomes, but we're seeing it as a site where um, its value is also seen through its ability to contribute to um, the competitiveness of a local medical technologies and pharmaceutical sector. And the way that the MRFF was set up, and particularly in the context of some of these broader objectives, have significant implications, I would say, for health, but also for science. So firstly, for health. The, the nature of the fund is to promote commercially relevant biomedical science, but I would suggest that because, particularly because the fund acts to redistribute spending from some parts of the health budget toward biomedical science, we're really seeing a, a privileging of um, medical science research over healthcare in the here and now. Um, this funding redistribution is really significant. I mean, this is several billion dollars, and yet we don't hear much about it. Um, in fact, I was just checking on the figures before I gave this talk, and I noticed there was another $2 billion that was transferred in July this year, and so I contacted the Future Fund, which manages this, to ask where did this come from, because there was no statement in the budget papers that they were doing more funding transfers this year. And they said, well, this is a flow-on still from um, decisions that were made in the 2014-15 budget, which made me think, how long is that going to go? <laughs> you know, it, it, these sort of um, major funding decisions are happening fa fairly much sheltered from public view and criticism. And I think this raises really significant questions because um, that's taking spending from primary health programs or preventive health programs that we know um, are effective, economically effective too, but on, on which um, sick people and poor people rely in the here and now. And we're putting that funding into biomedical research, hoping that it will deliver health outcomes and economic outcomes down the track but not being sure if the same people who are, in a sense, giving up the spending now are the ones that are going to be able to access that in the future. So I think there's some questions there. But for the scientific process, I think it's really significant that we've seen an abandonment by the MRFF of peer review. Um, and some of the scientists that I speak with, although they were first really excited about the, the um, new funding potential, are really worried now about its vulnerability to special pleading and also to um, politically-based um, decisions about expenditure. So are they going to use this to shore up spending in Phil, um, Peter Dutton's electorate, for example? Or are we going to see people who are mates with the Prime Minister, who we know is a donor in this space, be the ones selected for... There's just no accountability checks with the way that this is set up. Um, yeah, and, but I think there's a bigger question here too, which is about... Um, publicly funded researchers further internalising commercial imperatives. Mm. So 
some of the biggest champions for this were the medical research institutes. And, the, and CSIRO just never fails to surprise me. But, you know, they've recently released a medical technologies and pharmaceuticals roadmap where they don't even cite health objectives as a goal for their work. They talk about building the local industry and they literally say they anticipate that positive health benefits will be a flow-on effect. From a, and it's like, oh, wow, now they're saying health will trickle down, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space. So just in summing up, for those of us who want to encourage science-based technological innovation, which, as I think, is probably most of us, I think we just need to be more attentive to some of the tensions that are at play in science policy. I mean, sometimes, like Scott just said, you know, we don't have the same kind of um, ambivalence about how we relate to technology policy that we do in other areas. I think we need to also have a more, um, you know, full-throated um, engagement with science policy and see it as a space where there are active politics and social questions at stake. Um, I do think we need to make sure that we are defending the space for public interest science. It's increasingly narrowed. Um, that we need to weigh up carefully opportunity costs and implications for other policy objectives. Um, you know, in health, it's really clear, but I'm sure there's many other examples. Um, and I, I do think as well we should be wary of asking the tail to wag the dog. Um, and when, when it comes to developing in innovation policy, I think we need to look back to earlier times when there was a proactive state role in building industries that were seen to deliver social and environmental value. We need to not just expect that research is going to do all that heavy lifting by itself. So I think it's a real challenge to the Greens to think about what joined up innovation policy looks like. Um, so that's one of the things I hope that we can talk more about at this conference. Thanks. Thanks heaps, Georgia. That was brilliant. All right, so we're going to keep moving on through. So our next speaker is Penny Kiebers, and she came to work um, up in Parliament House just before everything went absolutely to shit. So we didn't get to work together nearly um, as long as I was hoping that we would get to. So I'm actually really looking forward to this. So Penny is... Um, she has a PhD in computer science, former lecturer and researcher in AI, human-computer interaction and video games. She has worked as a developer on AAA games in her own indie games. And so, who better to speak to us next on the topic of welcoming our new robot overlords? Uh. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm afraid that's more of a clickbait <laughs> sensationalist heading than actually what I'm going to talk about, but um, there'll be a bit of it in there. Though I am very interested in the concept of the machinima scene that um, Professor um, Brendan Mackey um, yes, brought up this morning. I just I wanted to give you a bit of context, even though Scott gave me an introduction for who I am. Um, as he said, I was hired to work for him earlier in the year, and briefly after that, hilarity ensued. Um, I did think I would be working for Jordan when I wrote these <laughs> slides, but um, hilarity has continued to ensue, and it's taken quite a long time um, for that all to resolve. Um, so I was a lecturer in computer science and games at... QUT and UQ in Brisbane, and um, I spent several years working as a video game developer, kind of on and off. Um, just, you know, I've, I've worked, I spent a lot of time working on post-apocalyptic video games, so it's possibly skewed my worldview a little bit. Um, <laughs> I do think the, the apocalypse is coming. My only question is whether there's going to be robots or um, 
zombies or both, but um, unfortunately no aliens also, um, according to Professor Mackey this morning, <laughs> which is a bit disappointing. Um, I, I did a PhD in complex systems and emergence. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and a lot of my research and a lot of my interests revolve around human-computer interactions, so people's interactions with computers and computers' interactions with people and society. So complex systems. I was very excited when I saw the theme for this conference, Everything is Connected, because that is all what complex systems is about, and that is a thing that I did. Um, and even more excitedly, I'm not the first person to talk about complex systems today, if you were paying attention this morning. So they're all about um, you know, interconnections, interactions, interdependence of the, the entities within the system. So a simple example, something like a colony of ants, each individual ant is a very simple organism. It's the interactions and the interconnections between those ants that makes the colony something else entirely. You know, the whole is more than the sum of its parts, but the more is, is different entirely. So... Um, as Professor Mackey said this morning, these systems are all throughout the natural and physical world that we live in, um, and people like me get really excited by that and try to you know, use them as inspiration for computer systems. So I'm going to jump a bit back in time now um, and talk a bit about the history of industrial revolutions. So uh, in the 1700s, there was the first mechanical loom, which led to the mechanical... Um, production um, based on water and steam power, and this revolutionised the textile industry in particular. Uh, so in the 1800s, we had mass production coming from the first conveyor belt, and then more recently, in the 1900s, the invention of electronics and computers, and you know that's been sort of steamrolling since then. Um, and now we're what in some people call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, although some people argue it's just a continuation of the third. And this is about cyber-physical systems, so really the integration of computers in physical systems and um, those existing in the physical space with a, with a tight interaction between you know, sensing and reacting to that physical space. Uh, so Klaus Schwab, who's a clever economist, which I am not, um, <laughs> defined the fourth industrial revolution as being quite different from the previous industrial revolutions so in terms of three factors. So velocity, the inventions and the change are happening really fast. So um, a lot, you know, a lot faster change than happened. This happened in previous revolutions. So the previous revolutions also tended to be a lot more localised in, in terms of industry and area. Um, but this revolution is disrupting most industries across the entire world. And in terms of systems impact, it's in, tra in transforming entire systems of production, management and governance, um, which really brings me back to you know, complex systems and the interactions and um, everything is connected. So as a researcher and an academic, I think this is really exciting for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, billions of people have connect are connected in ways that they never have been before. Um, and we have unprecedented processing power, storage capacity, and access to knowledge, um, which is both good and horribly terrifying. Um, 
So, you know, we can collect massive amounts of data. We produce massive amounts of data. This is collected. And we also have the ability to analyze this data and process this data. And a lot of this data is connected into, you know, what we term big data, um, which is used for both good and evil. Um, so and there's lots of, if we look across, you know, different areas of science, there's breakthroughs in AI and robotics, automated uh, vehicles, um, 3D printing, material science, and really a lot of the really interesting things come from the crossover of those different areas and what that enables. But obviously there are some um, implications for these changes as it have been with previous industrial revolutions. So, I mean, the idea of automation really is about automating work that is tedious or laborious or dangerous for humans to do. Um, so, you know, ideally it should result in more rewarding, more creative, interesting and satisfying and safer jobs. But obviously, at the same time, that causes massive disruption of labour markets. Um, and the interesting thing about this revolution um, over previous revolutions is that it's a lot about hollowing out of the middle class white collar jobs. And so it, it's something that's not hasn't really happened before, um, which is incredible creating increased segregation and inequality. So you have more low-skill, low-pay and high-skill, high-pay, but in the middle you have this wage stagna stagnation, you know, and a lot of social unrest and tensions that come along with that. Um, and increasingly more we have, um, you know, this late-stage capitalism and this winner-takes-all economy of the people that hold the intellectual and the, the um, physical capital um, they get everything, and we have further and further consolidation of wealth within these large multinational technology companies. The fat mags, yes, <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think the thing to think about, though, is that we're not just passengers on this ride. Like we should, you know, think about how we want this to go, and we should pay, play an active role in that. Um, we have power, we have opportunity to shape what this is going to look like. Um, you know, and there are big questions around what it means to be a human in this society. Um, what are our expectations and demands for privacy? Um, you know, what does it mean to, to be an owner of um, your, your own personal information, um, your, your possessions, yourself, and uh, what is the nature of relationships? We should think about what are our common objectives and values. Um, and I think it's important um, to not deal ourselves out of, as a nation, having the ability to hold intellectual capital. Um, we might have to invest in things like not having the most shit internet in the world. Um, we might have to invest in lifelong learning and education, so not just sending people to school and to university for the first time, but for re-educating you know, ageing workers whose jobs are rapidly changing. And we might have to have a government that at the first whiff of innovation and change doesn't, you know, run the other way screaming. So, and the other thing that concerns me is technological dependence. And these fat mags, to a large extent, are already gatekeepers for large components of our lives. So, you know, it's, it's annoying if you get locked out of your Facebook account or Google, but what about, you know, when they own every, every aspect of your life and all of your information and, um, 
you know, you, you can't get in your autonomous car and go to work because you haven't paid your subscription fees or, you know, just more horrifying things like that. And the final thing, with the increasing consolidation of wealth within these companies, I think we have to think about redistribution of wealth so that everybody can actually, you know, not live in poverty. And I'll just leave you with a quote from Stephen Hawking, who uh, I think responded with this on a Reddit AMA a couple of years ago. Um, he says, if machines produce everything we need, the outcome will depend on how things are distributed. Everyone can enjoy a life of luxurious leisure if the machine produced wealth is shared, or most people can end up miserably poor if the machine owners successfully lobby against wealth redistribution. So far, the trend seems to be towards the second option, with technology driving ever-increasing inequality. That was awesome. Is everybody else having fun? <laughs> See, the convergence and intersection of all these things is class warfare. This is interesting, isn't it? And politics. So um, I reckon that sets us up really beautifully. For our final speaker, Ellen Broad, who I ran into when she was um, working with the ADA, the Australian Digital, Digital Alliance. So she's described here as a data policy wonk and data tinkerer. She was previously head of policy for the Open Data Institute based in London, and it's pretty great that we've got her back in Canberra. And she also worked for senior UK government minister um, Elizabeth Truss as her expert advisor on data. And she's going to talk a little bit to cap us off, and I think we're going to get about... Um, just a little bit under half an hour for questions and challenging statements and stuff, which is great. Um, Ellen's talking about technology and democracy. Wraps up. Hello, everyone. I'm acutely conscious I'm all that's keeping you from having an actual discussion with the panel and also keeping you from lunch. Um, thank you, Scott, for that introduction. Um, so I don't know if this clicker is going to work for me because despite working at the Open Data Institute, I brought my slides in PDF. Nope, so I'll need some help clicking at the back. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about humans as data and humans as system designers because Penny has actually set us up really nicely to think about the flaws, inconsistencies, um, mysteries that are inherent in the machines that we're building now for a kind of an automated age. And I love this quote. I'm not sure how many of you have heard this quote before. Raw data is both an oxymoron and a bad idea. There is no such thing as raw data. The choices we make about what we collect influence the results that we get. Uh, anyone who followed the census this year might have seen the, the sheer impact of moving the no sexuality option from the bottom of the list of what is your religion to the top. We had an extra 8%, I think it was, of Australians who are, uh, have declared themselves of no religion. There's a data quality note attached to that, that they knew that by moving that option to the top of your list of options, people would be led to select it. We, the choices we make about data collection, the instruments we use, affect the results that we get. Um, and it's something to really keep in mind now because we're in the age of big data. We talk about um, data is the new oil, data is digital truth serum, and it gives it this homogeneity, this sense that all data is the same, all data has equal value, when the reality is it's pretty lumpy, it's dirty, it has a lot of holes. But when we talk to people, um, businesses acquiring AI using data, 
um, government departments wanting to use data to automate services, if you're not aware of how lumpy and messy data can be, it gives you this kind of overwhelming sense of optimism or accuracy, uh, kind of trust in the authority of the data that you're using. Who's heard this word before? Apophenia. Yes, Scott has. Anyone else? Next slide, please. So is, apophenia is a disorder. It's seeing patterns where none actually exist. It's actually um, one of the uh, kind of disorders, the effects that's most often described associated with schizophrenia. And we see this occurring in data all the time. 140% is the amount by which Google flu trends overshot the flu season in 2013. I'm not sure how many of you remember when the um, idea that we could use social media data to predict outbreaks of flu was considered one of the kind of really wondrous areas of big data. And Google flu trends was um, heralded as kind of an example of how data could show us instances of disease outbreak faster than humans could. But now it's been closed down very quietly because they realized that the social media data that they were using has its own flaws and inconsistencies. Not everyone tells their online friends that they've got the flu. 19,980. This is the number of overturned debt notices since the uh, introduction of the automated Centrelink debt system. In fact, it's probably higher now because these figures are from the March Senate estimates, so I haven't looked at what this week's are. But when we talk about artificial intelligence, democracy and trust, the more that we start to see errors exposed in the automated systems that government services are using, the less likely we are to trust those government services. Does anyone remember, this was huge, 440 million in 45 minutes. This was Wall Street. This was Knight Capital in I think it was 2012. Their trading algorithm uh, broke down for 45 minutes and Knight Capital lost $440 million. The algorithm started buying stocks at high prices and then selling them at low prices. <laughs> and of course, all of the other automated trading algorithms that other companies were using immediately picked up on this discrepancy and bought them all. And so Knight Capital went under. This was the um, direct contributing factor to Knight Capital eventually being disbanded and acquired in, in parts. And so algorithms make mistakes. They're inconsistent. Just like humans, we make miscalculations. Um, we overlook um, problems in the technologies that we use. Next slide. 51%, that's me, I've got a different haircut. That's what uh, University of Cambridge's personalization engine thinks, um, those are the qualities that it thinks I possess in common with a leader. I have 51% of the attributes that a leader would possess. I also, according to their personalization engine, there's a 61% chance that I'm male, although they clarify I may be in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> I am 44% calmer than the population, whatever the population means. Um, and their personalization engine is just one of a range of models being used to predict people's um, personality traits for the purposes of job recruitment, insurance premiums, um, for education, and these are increasingly being used as part of understanding how we might trust people using their social media footprint. But the reality is our data actually doesn't represent everything about us. My social media footprint, for example, is 
tweeting about technology on Twitter, cynical and vapid self-promotion on LinkedIn, it's occasional happy birthday posting in Facebook, and that's about it. There's not much more to that social media footprint as they see it. One billion is kind of moving into the optimistic side. So one billion is the amount Elon Musk has invested in open AI, his nonprofit, looking at how we build openness into the technologies that we're using. Because if we accept as humans that we are capable of error, we are capable of bias, and therefore the systems that we design are capable of these same kinds of challenges, then openness becomes a really crucial part of how we start to tackle the challenges. Openness of methodologies, openness of data, not necessarily openness for everyone, but openness in a sense of things that can be inspected. Nine, did I say 19 or nine? 19, 19.4 million is the number of open code repositories on GitHub. So this is um, lots of government services now use open source code. Um, being able to expose and understand, question and improve our systems is going to be really crucial to what we do next. It's not all bad, it's really about how we address them. Final slide, I think. Tus so how many of you are familiar with the Tuskegee Medic uh, syphilis studies? Couple of people, yes. So we talk a lot now, particularly in artificial intelligence, about data ethics. How can we become ethical um, system designers? How can we become ethical collectors of data and interpreters of data? And we kind of want to do this very, very quickly. And unfortunately, because I work with a lot of very logical people, that means um, declarative statements, checklists, guidelines that are supposed to tell you this is what you're doing right now is ethical, what you are doing right now is unethical. But what we see in other sectors is emergence of um, common understandings around how we treat people. Um, Tuskegee Medical, it's Tuskegee Syphilis Study changed the way we saw people as bodies to be respected and controlled over the course of the 20th century. It took 70 years, so the Tuskegee Medical Study was um, an experiment involving black sharecroppers that started in the 1930s. They were told they were participating in a blood disease study for six months, when actually a uh, percentage of them were injected with syphilis. And they were just watched over the course of the next 40 years to see the effects of syphilis on the human, even after penicillin became available as a treatment for syphilis. They made the decision in the course of science, it's important that we still be able to observe the effects on the human body. So people as individuals weren't considered. And it was a terrible, terrible lesson for the medical community around the 20th century. It wasn't alone. Gila cells, anyone who's read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, talked about um, tissue, taking tissue without people's consent. But from this kind of 20th century issue with people as bodies, we came out with concepts like informed consent before treatment. We came out with concepts like the need to tell people what um, treatment options are available to them, the need to be accurate in your diagnosis. And these are all concepts that I think we need to apply to people as data to kind of create a sense of accountability in our uh, automated systems. It's what does informed consent look like for data? Um, what obligations around accuracy, reliability, authority should we have as the results of these automated systems? How do you give people autonomy in an automated um, environment or landscape? So that's where I want to leave it. 
I know that we're going to have questions. Hopefully that leads to some now. So thank you. That was amazing. Um, can we please maybe collectively thank and acknowledge the incredible <laughs> panelists? Okay, <laughs> let's get straight into it. We've got about um, 25 minutes, I think, before Tim's going to call us in uh, for lunch. So let's get cracking. Try and keep it short and brisk and uh, give these folks time to expand on some of these ideas. But don't be afraid to throw in some ideas of your own. You were certainly first off the mark. Go ahead. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely my area of expertise. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm more interested in kind of the technology side of things, I suppose. Um, I, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I'm sorry. Can I give you a sure. I feel like everybody hinted at that on the way through. Yeah, shoot. Um, some of the um, kind of content of the internet is interesting in this regard. So if you do a search for, if you use Google, because no one really uses Google here still, do they? No, no, no. They use DuckDuckGo instead because that's a much better service. Um, so if you DuckDuckGo or if you, if you actually, if you Google Nelson Mandela, you have to go through eight pages of Google before you get a South African origined piece of information. If you look at something like Wikipedia, which is a wonderful, you know, idea of contributing to a, a human, you know, a global um, uh, knowledge encyclopedia, um, the sources of, you know, who's contributing to that is incredibly global north dominated. So, um, I think that the um, access to the internet um, and also the creation of content on the internet is really important to think about. The you know, ways in which technology is raced ahead and policy and um, laws haven't caught up are to do with monopolies. So we have ways of controlling monopolies, but we don't, like the, the, the new oil, um, all of the stages of its collection and distribution is owned by a couple of companies. Um, so we haven't caught up in terms of monopolies, but also in terms of cultural dumping. You know, so like Justin Bieber's available everywhere, but you know a lot of really interesting African local music isn't you know even in Africa. So it's having an incredibly distorting effect who has access and who is controlling and in creating the content. So I think that that's for me is the, is the big scary alarm bell as as well as the kind of the surveillance and the the control of this you know potential library of Alexandria into a McDonald's, which is for me the physical dumping too. Hey, like e-waste getting sent to West Africa and being burnt in giant piles. Like, it's, that's probably a whole workshop unto itself. Do you want to kick off, Georgia? Yeah, so I, I think it's one of the worst elements of the MRFF2 up there along with its funding mechanism. Um, I don't really have a lot more to say about it except that I share your concerns and I think the criticism was quite strong immediately after the announcement. The former CEO of the NHMRC was scathing. He said vested interests are circling like sharks. This is a really bad idea. Um, but I think the criticism from the research sector was more muted, simply because it was such a potentially big amount of money. But I think, yeah, I think now that the um, reality of what that might look like sinking in, there's a lot of grumbling going on but I haven't seen much of it pushback. So, I mean, I think this is something where the research sector, the health sector, and all of the rest of us who have an interest, which should be all of us, should be arcing up about this. Um, one, one last thing is, um, in the parliamentary debates, Labor said, this is unacceptable, you know, we'll overturn this if we're in government. Who knows if they would do that or not? Um, but I do think it's worth holding them to that commitment 
because it is potentially such a major, you know, bigger funding stream than our existing, um, you know, peer review assessed uh, grant schemes are. So I don't think we should just accept that it's a done deal. I think we should try and get it overturned. But to be honest, I don't think it's on the radar for them at all at the moment. And so that would take a, a you know, a pushback effort. So there's like three things in your kind of comment and question that I would want to unpick. One is like how accurate things like a life expectancy algorithm can be or how we should treat the results. The second is, should we be able to see them? They're publicly available. And the third is, like, how might that change our behaviour? So the problem we have at the moment is all of... So algorithms have predated what we now talk about in terms of um, machine learning and... Um, but, but they increasingly what we're talking about are probabilistic models. We're talking about estimates within a certain level of um, statistical accuracy. So, you know, it's like there's a 40% chance you might die at this particular point in time. But the language that we use to describe them imbues them with accuracy and magic. When what we're still talking about are it's it's probability. It's a theory. It's an estimate. In the same way that bomb yesterday, no, the day before yesterday, said there was zero percent chance of rain, and then I got rained on. It's because there's an element of error. But when we start applying those systems to people, it becomes really dangerous. Like facial recognition, we have had the discussion recently about national the national facial recognition database. We know that in facial recognition. Um, algorithms, there is an element of error. We know that error rate is about 15%. We know that um, uh, facial recognition technologies have great difficulty dis distinguishing black faces, distinguishing minority faces. And so understanding and wrestling with the error rate, 15% doesn't sound like very much, but 15% in the context in which that would mean it's primarily black people being misidentified is actually a really serious problem. So should they be available? So I liked that I could actually look up the personalization engine. I could, still couldn't see how it worked. I didn't know how they were defining leadership. I didn't know how they were looking at my social media footprint. These are all the things I'd want to know so I can assess whether it's actually accurate or not. Um, the problem is most of the time you actually don't know. You're not even aware that decisions are being made about you. You choose. On using a variety of recruitment startups right now in Australia, you just give them access to your social media data via an API as part of your job recruitment process. So you don't even see what the results of the psychometric profiling are for you to be able to challenge and interrogate them. So for me personally, I prefer seeing them. I would like to see them a lot more than simply the outputs, but I do worry about how seeing the outputs might change my behavior if I wasn't like, so I look at the personalization engine and I know how these things work and immediately start thinking about, well, what's their data source? How are they defining calm? How are they defining population? But if you're just a person applying for a job and it's 51% capabilities of a leader, how are you gonna go away and change your behavior and try and distort what you do so, so I do think it's, I can't see a way of reconciling them very easily because I want there to be seams 
I want to be able to see these things operating, but hopefully that might lead to greater education and debate around how they work so that we're not so influenced by them when we do see them. Awesome. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, everybody here must have regularly had the experience of bringing up a government department or um, writing a letter to a company and after the, this is over, they are asked to fill in a questionnaire about how adequately, how politely uh, they were treated by the person they spoke to on the phone. Now, I have had mixed reactions to this at first. Uh, my first thought was, oh good, this is, this is public consultation, this is feedback. My second thought, and that's the one that remains, is that this is a really vicious employer collection of information about their staff who are answering the phone calls. And I don't want to be part of it. My third thought was, at least if I do answer the questionnaire and put 10 out of 10 for everything, I might be counteracting the totally non-representative minority who are unhappy with who they spoke to. Maybe they just didn't like their accent and who have given them a really bad thing. Well, do you think that we really want to have a call for people to boycott these questions? Who wants to take that on? That's interesting. So my problem with those questionnaires is that they're just a terrible source of data generally. So I don't know if you've noticed now online when you access YouTube, for example, now they'll ask you questions. I'm not sure. Maybe so on quite a lot of services, if you're accessing newspaper content, as a way of accessing that content, you're asked a survey question like, what was the last advertisement for um, an airline that you saw online? Or which areas of government policy are you most interested in? But it's bold, like nobody answers those questions seriously. Nobody answers the questions that you get from about employer behavior. Pro like you are given a small set of options. The data is influenced by things like whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, um, whether you're white. So my, my fear is that that's being used as though it means something. It's, I don't think it's about boycotting, it's about stop using the questionnaires because they're just not very useful. Hmm. Sue, so, right, we'll come over to the side of the room for a little bit. Um, thanks for all such a terrific panel. Um, and my question is specifically for uh, Georgia, and when you were talking about the, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm uh, Sue where I'm when you were talking about the um, health and uh, equating health outcomes with economic outcomes, it sounded exactly like what's happening with the weapons industry. And the Malcolm Turnbull talking about um, any weapons production project, whether it's submarines or whatever, it's always about jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, and yet, as far as I can gather and I've asked around, there aren't any studies as to how many jobs we get for a billion dollars in submarines compared to, say, putting the same into health, education, public transport. And I asked Andrew Lee, our local ALP member, economist about this, and he made the question totally. So I think there aren't even any studies to say that food and weapons is a good way of creating jobs, and that's all we get. Uh, and on the uh, FB5 apps, the apps for, for jobs, for security for Australia, and they're, they're not about jobs, they're certainly not about our security. Uh, they're not for Australia, I mean, they're about money, money, and more money. 
to what it was. So um, I just wondered if you mm -hmm. um, looked into this issue at all and whether there's any information that I'm not aware of about equating um, um, security with their economic capital. All right, trickle down Armageddon. Yeah, so. <laughs> And it's going to deliver health too. <laughs> oh yeah, lots of work for doctors. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I don't know much about the weapons sector, but I do know in relation to health that, um, I mean, part of my objection to the way that the MRFF is framed is it focuses on a very particular understanding of what healthcare might deliver, both health and economic value. Um, and I think it's very clear that investment in preventive medicine both delivers jobs, delivers um, better outcomes in terms of health uh, expectancy because it's a more sure intervention than a clinical intervention, a pharmaceutical intervention, which may or may not work for a patient once they're actually ill. We know, for example, that chronic disease is an increasing part of the health spend um, and those kind of earlier stage interventions d deliver better value. So the economics is definitely around the primary care and the preventive health investment. So this decision, despite like the, the policy framework of the MRFF, despite being touted for its economic potential, doesn't make sense economically if you um, look at the big picture. But they're not looking at the big picture. They're looking at, at measures to try and promote development within a particular um, industry sector. Um, and, and I think it's interesting to ask, well, why that sector? And I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of research around what, what in science and technology studies, my area, we call imaginaries. So imaginaries of what a future industry will look like. It's not about um, you know, implementing effective, long-standing public health policy. It's about designing new whiz-bang technologies that we can export. And so there's, there's all these sort of conflicting, I think, ideas ways of thinking about value that come into play. But I also think it's worth acknowledging that the MRFF came into being very quickly to serve short-term political objectives of distraction in a very unpopular budget. So it's not like there was a whole lot of um, thought and planning and that underpinned it. There were just a whole bunch of rationales that got bolted on after the event. Um, and yet we're left with a very long-lasting legacy. Great. So we'll come down the front and then Mark. Oh, we've got a founding member of ICANN, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Felicity Ruby, up here. So go um, ahead. So uh, the Nuclear Weapons Convention that ICANN first launched with in 2007 um, has a pretty robust inspection and surveillance um, function. When I look at things like Pine Gap and look at the things that they are looking at and that they, the things that they could look at, um, you know, yes, there's a legitimate surveillance function to watch certain things like climate change, you know, as opposed to lefty, you know, peaceniks or, um, yeah, so um, we will need to deploy some of that capacity to watch and monitor nuclear waste as well. I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be a public health um, uh, benefit to doing that once we've taken the nuclear weapons apart, we're going to have to keep a very close eye for 
250,000 years. So yes, there's legitimate uses for surveillance even today by intelligence, national security and law enforcement um, entities. Um, they need to convince a judge that it's legitimate. There needs to be checks and balances. So surveillance per se, satellites per se, um, are, not, are not evil. Um, there is a legitimate use for some of these capacities, some of this technology, definitely. And they, 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 it will play a role in our you know, de, de, denuclearising our world um, to the extent that we can, given that we've created poisons that last for 250,000 years, like the idiots we are. Well, you know, by debunking this myth and by fusing these issues with, you know, really fundamental understandings of democracy, um, there is, I think, a, a, a disquiet, there's an anxiety that covers up some of that laughing it off, um, some of that, oh, I'm not important enough, they're not probably not looking at me, or, um, or teasing and, and, you know, calling ourselves conspiracy theorists, or, you know, I think that there's, um, we're athletically bouncing between a lot of those, you know, true believer, intimidated, conformist. Um, so um, I think, you know, debunking and providing, you know, arguments like I tried to provide you then, these are the, the things that, um, that matter and why this is important. You know, 150 constitutions mention the word privacy. That's not nothing, you know. It's understood as being um, as a, a, a crucial part of democracy. So I think we need to really understand it in, in, in those kinds of terms and then break it down and give people some very real examples of when this, you know, how the surveillance functions have been used in the past, you know, in very dark times of history, um, but also the, the implications today. The problem is, if you make people too afraid, and then it actually feeds into the idea of, oh, look, the horse has bolted, there's nothing we can do about it. And so, um, um, in a way, uh, you know, the people who are trying to raise awareness around it are securitizing the debate a bit, and um, sometimes we can, you know, too much uh, give um, hope or a false sense of reassurance with crypto technologies, because they're not also fail-safe either. Um, the idea of a herd immunity can help sometimes. You know, if there's one locked door in a corridor, then it's obvious where, um, where, where somebody is. But if there's lots of locked doors, if we're, lots of us are using crypto, if lots of us are um, saying, let's go down the pub um, with Signal instead of just open texting, um, they need to spend a bit more time and energy um, on, on finding us. But also, uh, it provides protection to those people who really do need it. So that herd immunity concept really helps. Breaking it down, you know, um, if you don't believe in privacy, well then just take off your pants, give me your PIN numbers, give me your password, Words, you know, Scott once invited George Brandis to not use curtains anymore. Um, I don't uh, think I did yeah, that. Yeah, you did, you did, you did, you did. And um, Glenn Greenwald says to people, you know, Glenn Greenwald hands out a special card to people saying, if you don't care about your privacy, please, here's my email, send me your passwords because I'll like to look at your email just in case, you know, it doesn't matter, that's cool. But it also, it's about the little, and no one has no PS. No, no, no takers. It's also just about the little endearments and the things that, that characterize our intimacies and our familiarity with with our children or with our friends or with our mothers, you know, like it gets creepy. So like hamming up the creepy, like getting into the principles of democracy, giving some negative examples, um, but also trying to build some hope and trust that we can, you know, like Edward Snowden has helped us and the NSA have confirmed that lots of the crypto stuff still works, that like they, oh, if they were using Tor, we couldn't actually, you know, bust them that time. So we still have tools that do work. And so let's use them. Let's be, let's not be intimidated by the tools either because we can be very intimidated by 
you know, we're, we're, we're less intimidated by cars, at least we know where to put the petrol than we are by our computers sometimes because we're scared of them. So um, being a little bit less intimidated, I think, can help. So it's a mixed message. It's difficult because I, what I was trying to get across earlier was that, you know, our responses are still quite immature to this phenomena because it's still a bit new, you know, the, the internet's still in its 20s. So like encouraging, trying to touch all of those elements, for me, you know, provides a bit more of a not alarmist and not purely utopian type response. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add. All right, let's try and jam in three more before we go to the lunch break, eh? So please keep them pretty crisp and I'll ask the panellists to do the same. Please. Um, my question is to both um, Ellen and Felicity, um, which is, uh, and it relates to the whole thing about um, Cambridge analytics, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think has been mentioned today, which is that I've stopped um, filling in, you know, personality tests and things like that because you sort of suddenly make the connection that all these so-called superficial and fun things are actually a way in which people are collecting a lot of data mm. to then specifically target groups of people on political campaigns or um, to manipulate their ideas on particular things. But I also, um, I, I'm also aware that I, I give up my privacy by being a social media activist. So how do you kind of work out those things? When do you, when, you know, like, how can I be an activist if I'm, if I'm so obsessed with privacy? Mm -hmm. So I, I suppose that, so my, it's one of those dilemmas for me sure. about how yep. to be All right. in this new age of privacy. Ellen, do you want to kick off? So the personalisation engine is by the same um, people that helped found Cambridge Analytica yeah. and are also the same academics that are behind the AI sexuality study. Yeah. Um, my real problem with them is that they and I know I banged on a little bit about it, is like, so Cambridge Analytica, um, their results are not as accurate as they want their clients to believe and they want everyone to believe. They are making lots of assumptions about how we engage online and how like accurately we fill out personality profiles when you want to sound certain ways. Like you want to say that you enjoy a challenge and you want to say that um, you're an engaged and um, committed person in relationships. Like they don't have the sociology or the psychology backgrounds to understand the data. Yeah. Um, but on the, so I'm really interested in, so, so I feel like privacy, we just have to accept that our responses to it have a little bit of an inherent contradiction. Zuckerberg can say privacy is no longer a social norm and still put tape on his microphone jack, his um, laptop video camera. Um, Eric Schmidt can say people no longer care about privacy and then be really upset when people use publicly available information via Google to figure out where he lives, his wife names, his children's names. We you, I don't think it's as simple. I get really frustrated when we say things like privacy is dead or people no longer care about it when even online we perform privacy in different ways. Even in your social media activism, you would be making choices about what you want to tweet, what you're willing to divulge. Like you might choose, like so for example for me, my Twitter persona doesn't really, isn't really about anything but technology and data. Whereas I also like pop music, I like Kendrick Lamar, but I don't share that publicly. And I think our biggest problem, it's not so much about getting everyone to use encryption, it's about how now data, we're losing context. So someone might come along to something as a data set and make assumptions about you that are 
inaccurate. Um, and I think that's where we'll start to really understand what privacy means online, because we are moving from a sense of surveillance to now this inference. We can use this as a means of saying lots of different things about you, and that's where I think the cracks will show. Or can get you killed in a drone strike, depending yep. on where you might live in the world. So up the back. Awesome. I'm really glad you hit that one. Going to probably have to yep. throw to flick. Chapter five of a book <laughs> by a guy called Adam Greenfield. The book is called Radical Technologies, and it is the best um, debunking of blockchain, um, saying it... Blockchain is like Bitcoin. It's the distributed verification, shared ownership um, of a currency exchange. And that's kind of the proof point of this idea of, oh, maybe we could have decision-making that's verified by a whole group of people. Maybe we could have smart contracts. Maybe, maybe this could be the way we could organise at scale democratically. <laughs> OK. And he says... You know, be optimistically kind to people who are trying to use it in that way, but actually it's more like the full privatisation as opposed to um, a, a proper protection or sharing of the, of the open commons. That's the shortest summary I can give. It's the best examination of the political implications of thinking that something that's really good for a currency might be good for democracy. It might be quite honest to say, oh, you need to buy into democracy or you need to be a shareholder, but that's actually a real perfection of cynicism. And just, can I just say really quickly two practical things about blockchain, which Do is it. why it's not... So it consumes a massive amount of energy, yeah. so huge problem with blockchain that we're trying to solve. And also, permanency is not something that you necessarily want. So one of the founding things about blockchain is that everything mm. is permanent yeah. and locked and cannot be moved. But what if you go into witness protect, like, so what if you had blockchain for ma births, deaths and marriages and then someone goes into witness protection or they change their gender or there are all kinds of reasons you want certain data to be fluid and changeable. Mm. So that's my big problems. Plus one on the book recommendation. Strong, strong endorse. No, we could run this all the way through the lunch break. Please thank our extraordinary panellists. <laughs>